Hey, Jamie, I've got a question for you. What do you want, Tom? Who's on the podcast this coming Friday? Oh, is it someone big? Boy. Is uh, it a big one? Shall I bother listening this week? Yeah. If I was going to say uh, take. And I would say off no, your trousers. No, no. Take. Me out. No, take. Paddy McGuinness. No, take. Take on me. Take that. Wow. Have a little patience. But hang on, presumably you've only, you haven't got all three of them, have you? Presumably you've just got one of them. Buddy, we have all three of them on the podcast. They've released a new album. It's coming out. They're going on tour. They talk about the ups, the downs, the lefts, the rights, on everything that happened in Take the That. The ins, the outs. And they reveal it all this Friday. Exclusively. On Private Parts. That's a big one. I'm going to listen to that. 
do that. So I think that that was that that alone is kind of a um, uh, you felt hostility and out of your own country in a place where you think it's more progressive, maybe, but not. Well, I know it's like, that it I know what's going on in the media here right now. So right now it's not more progressive for trans people in a certain right. way. But um, but that's a new development, and that's it's, I guess it's upsetting to watch. I'm a big fan of I'm a big fan of the UK, so I'm not sure what the problem is right now. I think sometimes it's you know it's the rational logical brain that gets in people's way that well there must be some this is this da 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 and it's not they're not actually sitting down and un- being compassionate yeah you know um, what i think i think it's that there's an idea that it's a debatable thing right right like right, i'm right, sitting right. in front of you like talking to you yeah or even like what's the debate like we exist so i mean <laughs> like what's even the conversation to be had right like i think that's what's wrong is the whole framing it's like why is there even a conversation going on especially when you think about the fact that at least in the u.s i don't have the uk numbers we're one percent of the population uh so you know the idea of having national debates about whether or not we exist is something that's just hard to fathom, right? Yeah. Because who, wh- what is this for? Like, I think it's, this is about people who aren't trans, who feel anxious about gender identity because we're living at a time where gender is changing. Uh, men aren't sure what their place is anymore, you know, I mean, uh, etc. I mean, yeah, that, but like, I mean. that's what I think. I think this is about, this is like, people need to come for their own. A big part of why maybe you don't see trans men telling stories also is that you know, so much about stories about trans people in general are sort of marginalized into like this kind of othering, you know, violent othering of like, you know, we're these aliens who come and we're born in the wrong body and then we turn into these people who are, have the right bodies. And it's this very like, you know, like keeping the space between us when in fact, actually, I think what we can offer is, you know, we're regular people who've had a very ex- extraordinary life experience yeah. that I think reflects on gender in a broad way. I mean, I just, you know? I, I, yeah. <laughs> And I, I'd find it difficult to fathom how anyone can be feel affected by by an existence that like just doesn't affect them. Sure, that has no imposition upon their experience. Right. Like just now, I was hearing a, a radio a thing about um, homophobia, mm-hmm. and because you know, I think to a lot of people, this radio presenter was kind of being like, on a logical, rational level, it doesn't make sense how you can have that. Yeah. Um, to the extreme prejudice argue you can argue or, or up but it's like the fact that people are putting in actual infrastructure to be like no this is something's yeah. gone wrong yeah and it's like I don't know I find it I find but funny. it does make sense because the way that we socialize boys literally culturally yeah, is yeah. to believe that uh, you know within that idea of the man box just to like get into it for a second I mean this is something that was the most important thing I learned in this book so I, I always try to say it at every interview yeah, but like of course it's something I'm very passionate about yeah too. yeah but like every question I so I the point of the book was I would I was training for this fight in Madison Square Garden yeah of course and as I was training every historic question, <laughs> historic so. fight and at every every moment of the training where something uncomfortable came up for me, a question about being a man, I just wrote it down. And then at the end, I went and reported out all of those questions. And so every one of those questions from like, you know, what is a real man to like, am I sexist? Because that came up. Uh, it all led back to, yeah, just, just saw that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it all led back to, um, once I talked to people, this idea of like, all of these ideas about masculinity that we're talking about when we say toxic masculinity, which of course is not all masculinity, but a a certain socialized, yes, a certain socialized, um, set of behaviors. We learn them all in boyhood. 
and we all all people who are boys learn them in boyhood so 100%. i yeah and and i missed that part you know so i learned it at 30 so yeah. i have the the frontal lobes in order to actually understand what's happening yeah, but you're conscious of it conscious of it yeah but like that idea of the man box that's like a real thing that where they go in and talk to like 10 year old boys sociologists do this and they draw a bo- you know a box on the board and they say what is a real man and the boys will always say things like, you know, being powerful, not yeah, showing yeah, emotion, yeah. like 100%. literally all, all the time. And they've picked this up from our culture. So I think when we, one thing that I think we are doing wrong when we're talking about men is um, not having empathy for those boys, because it's not fair to expect a child to understand the difference between, you know, like being toxic and not being toxic when that's exactly what we teach them. I think where my empathy ends is once we're talking about this with men who from the place of like, look, you've been socialized in this way. You've learned that dominating women, um, you've learned that that not being girly, not being gay, I'm putting that in quotes because that's literally what the psychologist I talked to described her decades of work with boys. Like that's the way yeah. they describe being still, a man. Still. Yes. Still. So they've learned homophobia as part of- Yeah, femininity. It's a fear yes. of femininity. Yes, exactly. And, and so they, it's displayed and they go, oh my God, this is wrong. You're being- oh, it's, yeah, and they've learned that in order to be a man, you have to keep protecting your masculinity. Like, but also, I think to, to make it sorry, yes. to interrupt. Yeah. But I think one thing I also want to make a, a, a line between is is um, homophobia and 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 um, uh, like hardwired misogyny. Mm-hmm. Because I've actually, I also think there's a there's a massive strain of that within the gay community, within of course. the male gay community. I think yes. there's like loads of misogyny that occurs. Well, because they were boys too. It's just that they happen to be gay. Right. <laughs> yes. That's you have is- to undo this all. Like it has to be a conscious effort. You don't get like a pass, and that's why you can't oh, really? call yourself a good man. That's a separate yeah. note. But yeah. like, there's no <laughs> such thing as a good man. For there to be a good man, there has to be a bad man. Yeah. It's not useful to call people good men because then they no one looks at themselves. You just get to like, yeah, you it, know, it's, it's, it's evasive, and it's it's and everyone exists. Yeah. I think the more conscious you are of your shadow, the right. more likely you are to be in right. control of your, you know, your actions. And the more liberated you are. Yeah. Frankly, it's up. It's it's your to your benefit to actually have Morality's this. Morality's a killer. Right, relationship with yourself because you know this isn't about proving. And and I think for men, we learn that to be a man, you have to prove your masculinity. That is very strange. If you just think about it for like five minutes, it is very weird, the idea that to be a thing that you already are, you need to constantly prove and protect that thing Uh and that it can be policed or taken Uh away from you. But that's the definition of toxic masculinity. How does that feel to to pick up a newspaper and and feel separate? Mm. And and what do you do in yourself to bring a sense of calm or positivity? I think I've focused. I mean, so recently I, I'm now in my later thirties. So I transitioned at 30 and, and now in my later thirties. And I've been thinking a lot lately about um, young people. And I, you know, I, I worked with teenagers, you know, before I transitioned, I was like, I taught high school and uh, I've always been involved with young people. And I think because I didn't see anyone like me when I was young, I'm really conscious of having a like sort of place where I can theoretically like be the person that I never saw as a young person. That's quite something to transition at 30. Yeah. You've, you know, that, which is in the book, this book amateur is, which is why I think it's like gold dust right now in this climate, because you talk a lot about the performative aspects of masculinity or learning Mm -hmm. after having lived another learned Mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. What was the moment when you when you thought, okay, I, I'm I, I need to 
be who I really am? Mm-hmm. And and what did you not expect in, in that in that journey? Yeah. Well, I didn't have a moment where I knew that I needed to be who I really was. Not really, because I it spent my whole life being very androgynous, you know, and and in some ways very resistant to the idea of having to have a gender, have it, right, yeah, yeah sure. no, or, or or one that was legible. Like I kind of I was always very queer, um, but then I think. For me, actually, over time, I I think gender dysphoria is a real thing, and I had it, and so eventually it was sort of just many years of that buildup. It's exhausting. Yeah, and it was exhausting, and eventually I I, I uh, actually had this very kind of spiritual um, year or so where uh, I, I kept imagining a, sort of this vision of myself, and I write about it in my first book, but it was like I saw this guy sitting at my kitchen table, and he had this beard, and I would sort of see him. Like I wasn't sleeping well because I was considering transitioning, and I was just realizing what a big life change that would be and yeah. what I could lose and having no idea how the people in my life might react and right. thinking about names. And it was just a, a kind of, it was a very intense time. And, and so because of that, yeah. I, but I, I felt like it was important sort of to go through this ex, like sort of experience of just feeling strange. And, uh, so I, I kept imagining this man and he was sort of bearded and had you know dark hair and looked like me, but not like me. Right. And I knew it was me. And then, you know, in the last few years, I've been like, that was, it's literally what I look like, you know? Really? I, yeah, I can, I, I, I pictured myself. It was really strange. Oh, yeah. Whoa. So, um, so that's what it was like. It was like this, like, I guess any big life transition where that's like a scary one, you know, I think anybody can relate to really the feeling of, um, I know I need to do something differently. Something's not working, but I, and I'm taking a chance, but I don't know what it's going to look like on the other end. And I especially actually, once I was on, um, testosterone, once I started, I was yeah. really connecting to, to pregnant women yeah, yeah, yeah. who were, uh, I just happened to have a lot of pregnant friends at the time. And like, we really could connect around like, you know, obviously getting you know the hormonal yeah, stuff and yeah. yeah. And the homeostasis that has to happen over time. It's not like you immediately are all sorted out. Like you, your body has to adjust mm. and, and just not knowing who you're going to be on the other side of it. Like, what are you going to look like? What's your life going to be like? Is this the right choice? So once I transitioned, I think what was really interesting and where this book came from was like, you know, I transitioned and I think often we hear stories about trans people and they just end with the transition. It's like, Oh great. You did it. You know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. hooray triumph. Uh, and, uh, and I think that makes sense because, you know, there is a lot about, you know, it's, it, you know, people love authenticity and stories of authenticity and, and it is about being your authentic self. That's not wrong. But I think what's more interesting to me is what happens next, you know? And, and for me, you know, basic identity formation, the way it works psychologically is first you figure out who you are, then you figure out your place in the world. So for me, once I knew who I was, what it felt like was, oh, when I'm in my apartment, I feel great. I feel awesome. I feel like incredible in my body. I feel like I, I really am myself. I feel great. And then I left my apartment. I would leave my apartment and it was like everything about the way the outside world treated me felt dissonant. You know, mm-hmm. like my sense of what it was to be a man for me was not at all lined up with the expectations of masculinity. And so that's everything from the privileges I got, like yeah. in terms of, you know, immediate privilege. Because I'm also a white man. So it's like the amount of, I can't even describe what a wildly different experience that was, you know, like, I, like uh, you know, cause I was this androgynous queer person who suddenly has this legible gender. Yeah. I'm white. I'm a man. I'm in my thirties. So I'm like getting promotions. I'm getting like, Serious. yes, yeah. I'm, um, when I speak in a meeting, everyone listens, like no one ever interrupts me. Uh, when I'm walking around at night, I feel safe. Women walk away, you know, across the street to be, you know, not near me, like, because I'm a threat all of a sudden. I mean, yeah. All of those things. So that was, 
obviously upsetting and distressing and something I thought I need to figure out what to do about this. And then the other side of that was the constrictions of masculinity. Like I felt suddenly very much like so much of what I prided myself uh, on as a person, you know, being empathetic, being uh, the person who could be emotionally present to other people, like being able to be vulnerable about myself. Like those things were suddenly policed, like almost relentlessly by everyone in my life. And uh, so I was living in what, you know, sociologists call a man box, which is like this very narrow definition of, of masculinity that I felt myself being forced into without really my consent, but it was almost impossible to to even understand what was happening, you know, but it's just like suddenly like nobody was touching me. And, um, if I was sad, people were weird, but if I was angry, everyone was okay with it. And that was, you know, that was sort of the landscape of my life before I wrote this book and where the book came from. I was in a pickle but I picked it up. Now I do pingers and I stick them up. It's been a while since I missed the bus and to be honest, I missed the rush. So I just want to ask you what your favorite color is. My favorite color? Hmm. Well, I've been going hard on pink lately, actually. I, I don't look good in it, is the thing. I wish I did. What, uh, what type of pink? I, in terms of what... You could do a pastel pink. But I, it's like I get like a kind of yellowy tone. It really? just doesn't look right on me. Yeah, but in terms of... I think it would. You th- really? I think a pastel pink. Really? Yeah, not a fuchsia pink. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow this advice and I'm going to send you a picture of myself. Yeah, not salmon. Not pastel. salmon. Yeah, right. Okay. It's a little lighter. Yeah, but there's no yellows in that. No, I think the yellow is the sa- is sam- salmon. All right. Yellow. So, all right. So, yeah. <laughs> That's the only reason why. why. I mean, I think, you know, honestly, like with my American book cover, like we really, like I really wanted it to be pink. So it is, uh, which for obvious reasons. And, and I just feel like, you know, it's, I mean, it's sort of an aggressive move on my part, but I just feel like oh, sure. going hard with the pink has been really a big part of my life lately. Um, I wonder what the, st- I wonder what the start of that is. Does anyone know? The millennial pink? No, like the fact that there's pink and blue. Oh, I do know. <laughs> I do know, but not as in much detail as I should. I okay. do know that it used to be the opposite. I know that it used to be that boys were associated with pink boys' clothes and oh, that oh. girls were associated with blue. Well, and then something <laughs> happened, and this is the part I, we, you know, we can Google it, but something happened with, there was like a manufacturing thing and something happened and then there was a switch. But this was in like the 1800s. So it was always, girls were blue, boys were pink. Maybe it was easier to produce whchever color, you know, girls got. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's so stupid, right? Tom, I can't. This <laughs> yeah. is what I mean about life, yeah? Yes, it's what I mean about life. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to say something I just remembered. When we're talking about responsibility and to not uh, put the, uh, necessarily, to empathise more with the young boys who are unaware of the conditioning they're experiencing. Right. Yeah, I really think the, the push, which can almost be a bit, shovey mm-hmm. <laughs> a bit more mm-hmm. is with fathers and i think it is a responsibility of this generation whatever generation even now even if your kid's 20 and you're 50 yeah it still is to go just just relax the shoulders and just be like actually because it's shown if you just love a child for whatever they want that's and that right. can be masculine that can be feminine that's right. then they respond yeah and they're just happier yeah when i have to give i mean i parents tend to come to my my talks and my readings especially parents of trans kids and they say like you know what's what what advice do you have and 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 so for parents of trans kids my advice is always like just love your kid like there's no right way you know just love your kid end of story but but i also get often this question of like parent from parents of boys how can i be a better parent to my boy child how can i make sure my boy doesn't end up you know in this man box, et cetera. Mm. And my advice, which they never like, is realize you have a gender because if you are trying to 
help him understand about all of this, but you yourself have never thought about your own body and space. Uh-huh. How will he understand? How can, if you don't model, yeah, you know, and you know, in a sense of like inquiry about yourself, you're not teaching your kid how to do that. You're just giving them some like talking points that are, you know, liberal talking points, but that's not the same, you know? What's but anyway, the color, my favorite color is pink. How old were you when you first became conscious of, of mental health, I'd say? Hmm. When you started to realize like, ah, maybe I'm feeling this way because of things. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't know because it's hard for me to know the answer to that because my childhood was really, it was a pretty traumatic childhood. Right. And so my own feelings were kind of not the front of my own mind you know I think if you grow up in an abusive household like your experience of yourself is not separate Mm -hmm. from your abuser or from like the environment if that makes sense but I guess for that reason reading was such a respite for me because I would find empathy and and my sense of self in books because I, I I read really young and I would have this time to myself where I could relate to people that I was reading about. And that gave me a sense of like echolocating who I was because mm, I could see, you know, I'm awful. connected to this character. Yeah. Like, and, and, and also to see all the ways the world existed beyond my, my experience, you know, that there were so many models of being a person or having a family or having a life that were not what I was experiencing in, you know, in the worst time of my life, you know? Mm. So I think that's where I got a sense that my own body was separate and mattered and that I could connect to others even just in my mind, you know? And, and so and it sort of was a, a roundabout way to do it, but that is how I ended up seeing my own feelings as, as my own. But did you find a place, like for me, books was a, were a place where I could be my whole self, even if it was just in that period. Well, in my own like, head, I suppose. Yeah. I, I, but people have argued actually that that's the root of my ADHD because hmm. you kind of go into your head as a safe space. Oh, that makes sense. But, um... I don't know where I say Sonic I, I read a lot of Sonic the Comic as a kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's probably why. Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. So what would you say has been your best period of mental well-being? This one. I'm in it. Love it. Yeah, I'm in it right now. And it's weird because the world feels like it's falling apart. But <laughs> but I guess, you know, from I think it, it's not because of luck. It's because of hard work. It's because of all of the things I've had to do to get here. Yeah. And I feel prepared, you know. And actually, my fight feels actually a, a very big part of that. And speaking of anger, you know, something people often ask is like, what was the most surprising thing you learned in boxing? And for me, like, it was that I was never like a violent person or anything, but right. learning how to fight as a trans person, as a person who was queer, as a person from a marginalized back, like identity, yeah. learning how to fight is something that I needed to know. And I feel like now I'm ready to fight for things that matter to me. Yeah. And so in this time that's really challenging that I feel like is obviously getting a lot of people down. I feel I have a the privilege of having learned to fight and therefore can fight for people who don't have that yet, you yeah. know? And and so that gives me yeah. so much, su- such a sense of well-being that I've not had before. That's something I try and remind myself. I've got a good friend of mine who does that and he feels a bit down and he asks someone how they are. Yeah. It just sounds... <laughs> or like, or do something nice for someone else. Yeah. You know, that thing. It's But it's really true because also then you feel empowered again. Yeah. I love that. Okay, great. And um, I mean, maybe you hinted that already with discussion of your childhood, but what, what would you say has been your worst period of, of mental health? I don't know if it was my childhood. I think it was actually um, after my mom died. Okay. Yeah, because I think for a lot of reasons, I was... Uh, um, I was only four years into my transition, which sounds like a long time, but I had moved to a new city. I was in New York. So being new to New York is... At the same time? 
I moved to New York a year before my mom died. Right. And I, oh. so that was three years into my transition. Um, moving to New York is, is hellish. Yeah. It's like, I, it's really hard to explain how awful it is. Like the whole first few years you're there, people are like, oh, how long have you been here? Oh, two years. Oh, you're right. new. Mm. Yeah. So you're new until 10 years technically. Wow. Uh, but, but it's, it gets better after about four or five years. But the first year is just no one cares. No, no one cares. And you do every, I, I did everything wrong. I lived in a weird apartment. There were like roaches. There was a crazy roach problem. I had to leave. There was a woman next door who had, had her you know, t television against my wall and she would head up and up all the way. No. Yeah. And then I tried to get her headphones for her television cause she was like this old lady and she wouldn't use them. And <laughs> it was just like, no. and then I lost my job. And like, then I was like, how am I even going to find an apartment and live? And it was just one hellish thing after another. And then my mom got my mom sick died. and she died very suddenly. And that was hellish. So and then I was dealing with all this stuff around masculinity where I felt like I don't, I didn't have a lot of friends in New York yet. And I, no, uh, yeah. So it was a real, like that whole year was my turning point year where I think it could have gone really badly. And I think that's what I mean about sort of having like the fighting and the boxing really was my way out of something that could have been really bad, honestly, but ended up really good. And I feel like I, I had to really claw my way out of, you know, it's not just New York. It's like, the, the reality of being trans and having to go through all of this hit me. I also, at that time especially, was like, will I be able to find a job? I don't know what my life, I don't know what being a trans what man in this like, world yeah. is going to mean. Like, w will someone Google me and not rent me an apartment? Like, yeah, I had no idea. So, That's scary. Yeah. And just, you know, to say too, like, you don't know when you, tra we still don't know what are the actual health effects of, of transitioning. Like, right. I might be more at risk for cancer. There are some studies that say that. We don't know. Like, so, so many things felt up in the air and unclear and it was so early on. And I also was feeling like I'm not even being my authentic self after all this because of all of this socialized masculinity that I was up against. So that was a really did bad that, time. Did you find that affected your grieving? That Yeah, I, that was the biggest, I think that was the biggest drive for me about this book. I mean, the book starts because I, you know, it, it starts in the book and also this is what started the book was, you know, I kept getting into these weird street fights yeah. with guys and, uh, or I, they didn't turn into fights, but sort of street altercations. But it was and almost alien to you. Alien to me, but I think I was walking around so angry because I had so much grief and I couldn't express mm. the other parts of the grief because it was just impossible. And so I, I think I was flagging to people who also were angry. Like it was almost like a weird flare. Like, you know, I'm angry, you're angry. And then guys would try to fight me. And I really felt like if I didn't address that, I was going to become the guy who was trying to fight me, you know, like, yeah. and I needed to change it. So yeah, I think all of that combined made that the worst time of my life. I'm so glad it's over. <laughs> but it could possibly have laid the foundations for the best part. That's what I think. Well, I think that's true. Well, I think of, uh, yeah, yeah like, everything. The way. Yeah. Yeah, every time I get a night off, I see a whole lot of bunnies and I want the cameras on my watch it, on my watch it, gotta watch my life at all costs it. So fuck it, shit's amazing, treating life like it's a painting, it's so scintillating, ain't it? Maybe need some changes. Yeah. Are there any specific songs or artists um, or albums that mm. define either a really positive time, negative time, or, or something you can't listen to anymore, that kind of thing? Wow. I've been really revisiting Kate Bush. Right. Uh, who I feel like is a perennial queer icon. Like, I just feel like for whatever reason, I mean, she sort of, like someone gave me a mixtape uh, in like, you know, 1995 or something with it, like <laughs> with her with her album on it, which came out in 1985. Uh -huh. And then I was like in the car the other day, and I had some friends who were who were lesbians who were listening to to Running Up That Hill, and that's a song that I've been like sort of re revisiting like recently. I'm interested in music that bridges 
my identities. Yeah, I've lived yeah, yeah, a yeah. lot of lives and, and especially like, you know, obviously around gender and being queer and how, how do I integrate, you know, like because I'm married to a woman, you know, and I'm a man. And so, but I had this whole life before that and, and how do I kind of integrate all of it? And yeah. I, I really feel attracted to music that reminds me of my whole self. And of so course. Kate Bush, like, and especially that song, it's so touching and, it's like, I, I feel so emotional when I hear that song, but it's in so many different ways and it's so layered that it's like cathartic to listen to it, you know? Love that. Yeah. Are there any songs that you can't like, that you like can't listen to? Do you know what I mean? With those ones mm. where it's like, ah, oh, I have a few, like an album where you were taken back to a time and you're like, no, I can't, I can't That you don't want to hear again. I mean, I think there's probably a million of those albums. I'm just trying to think of one off the top of my head. I actually feel like recently I've been having the opposite experience of wanting to revisit music, but you know, like for me, like right after I transitioned, I, I wanted all the photographs of myself from before to put a, like put away. I didn't want to see any pictures from my childhood. I didn't want to see any pictures of like, I just wanted them all gone. Right. And, uh, and in the last couple of years, I've been really like reintegrating all of these images of myself, you oh. know? And yeah, it's, it's been, and not, not all of them, but, but you know, especially after my mom died, it was like important to me. Like these are pictures. Also my mom was in these pictures. Like this is my life. And so, um, so I think I've been on a bigger campaign to sort of revisit, you know, music and revisit. Like I will say, um, I love Paul Simon. I love that album Graceland. That's been a harder one to revisit because my, when my mom was dying, we listened to it a lot with her because it was some, it was an album that she really loved. And like growing up, we all listened to this album together, like in the car. And then when she was dying, we played it for her when she couldn't really talk. And so that's been something that, yeah, I've been sort of, uh, creeping up on listening to that. Like I'll listen to a song here and there and I'm like, whoop, all right. Like that's enough of that. You know? Yeah. But that's quite an amazing barometer of, of, of grief because it's so gradual. I mean, it never goes, but it's, it's so gradual, isn't it? And it's, it's death can be a trauma. Like I think my mom's death was certainly a trauma. And so for me, it's like, I know with trauma, I've had enough of it. You've got to, you got to figure out how to sort of titrate it back into your life and, yeah. and and for me music is a way that I've been able to do that so it's patience isn't it yeah my mom has um has already specified to me what song she wants played at her funeral oh wow so that's better get used to listening to that now cheers mom it's nice for you to tell me that when I'm 10 yeah <laughs> right um, it is quite in the same way as you described the relationship with books yeah that's something I find so mad about music because coming from a background of loving rap mm. uh, and like, uh, you know, there's uh, so much in like the cadence of a sentence and the way a, a, a lyric rhymes. And I think actually there isn't enough credit given to. Oh, rap, totally. I think. However, you know, I, I, I myself have I, I also like writing singing songs. Sometimes I actually can't write raps for whatever reason, because it, there's something in my body that translates easier mm. because there is a lot said in melody, mm-hmm. which is weird. No, that makes sense. It's like a conceptual emotion kind of thing, you know, where it's like yeah. you can say a whole thing and map it out beautifully. Lauren Hill can rap a whole right. verse and you go, I exactly understand yeah. where you're from. But then someone can just be like, oh, I feel it. Yeah. And then you're like, what? Well, it's something, there's something about the emotion. It's sort of like poetry versus reading a sort of more straight story. Sure. Like there's the way that the, you know, it's not the individual sentence in poetry that gives you the the feeling. It's the whole thing together. And you're trying yeah. to create an experience of feeling for someone. Yeah. Music, I think, creates that experience. Yeah. It's that ambiguity. You know, people find a lot in the ambiguity, don't they? Yeah. In little, in, or in a question they, where, where you have, this is it. This is your perspective. And then there's a little bit in between, which is the art. Yeah, exactly. Which is kind of wild. Yeah. yeah.
Okay, so we've got a thing called Whole Hour as well, um, okay. which is encouraging people um, to just take an out of their, uh, hour out of their day. Mm-hmm. What oh would God. you do with, yeah, is it, I mean, what would you do with your whole hour? In terms of what I do regularly with my free hour, I, I actually have free two hours that I use regularly to go mm. see movies. Mm. I do I see movies oh, all do the time. You do them on your own as yes, well. Yes, I love seeing oh, movies by man, myself. And you wait till right at the end of the run, so you're in a cinema alone too. I love you can that. Your feet on the seats in front and yep. throw popcorn at yep. people. Well, I don't throw the popcorn. Okay, besides so that, because people have to clean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, and is there anything you would say to? someone listening to the podcast who's potentially having a bit of a tough time I think that people know innately what they need and I think that usually when you're in the hardest time what is what's what is especially hard is all the pressure you feel to like be better or to to you know do something for someone else that you're supposed to be doing or the responsibilities you have or, and I think almost always for me the thing that works best is is to this hour idea to stop what you're doing you know take Take some time for yourself and and see it as time that is actually going to help you. This isn't about like you failed or you're lazy or you're, this is literally like part of the process that you need to get in touch with yourself. And once you are in touch with yourself, always you know what you need to do next. Always. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, this was so fun. Yeah. If you would like to subscribe to our podcast, please click subscribe. Um, so just thanks for listening, really. And um, look after yourselves. <laughs> Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Powered by Spirit Studios.